that's the way to think about it. You have the Constitution, which is above all, right? That's sort of the law of the land in each state. And then you have the statutory normal laws and the code that it's typically called. And then you have rules and regulations at the executive level. And all of those three things combined give you sort of the, the framework and structure for a legal cannabis market. Hello, and welcome to the history of drugs in society. I'm your host, Eugene Leventhal. This week's episode is an interview with Jared Moffat, who is a state campaigns coordinator for the Marijuana Policy Project, or MPP. In this interview, we cover three areas broadly. We start with the projects that Jared has been and is working on. We dove into South Dakota as a case study of a successful ballot measure, granted they're facing some pushback. And we ended with a broader discussion on how to change cannabis policy. I thought Jared's experience in Rhode Island provided a good glimpse in getting involved in affecting cannabis policy firsthand, which Jared did initially while he was a student and then started doing it professionally. Talking about his work led us to the South Dakota case study, where we both talked about what it took to get the ballot measures in place in the first place, and in terms of what happens after a ballot measure is generally passed. It's important to note we recorded this in late January, which is before a judge in South Dakota ruled that Constitutional Amendment A, the ballot measure for legal adult recreational usage in South Dakota, was actually in violation with the state's constitution because it addressed more than one subject. As Jared will explain in more detail as we get into the interview, there are certain states where effectively things can get thrown out because they're covering too many topics. And despite that constitutional amendment A was exclusively focused on various provisions around free use cannabis, nonetheless, it was deemed that too many things were were being uh, fit into a single ballot measure here. So again, just keep that in mind when you hear Jared talking about the possibilities of how things could play out uh, as of January when we were having this discussion. The judge's ruling exclusively is in context of the free use ballot. Uh, it, It does not affect the medicinal marijuana ballot. In terms of some general housekeeping, I think this is going to be my last interview uh, focused on drugs for a while. I'm currently launching a new podcast that's going to explore the topic of finding and refining one's meaning in life, and I really want to give that podcast and project the focus and attention it needs to get off the ground. Nonetheless, this is a topic I really care about and am interested in, so don't be too surprised if there are random episodes that do come out, Uh, but eventually I do want to get back into more of an exploration of, you know, what does a world with legal drugs look like? And I do just have some specific topics that I want to get into and cover, for example, getting more into psychedelics and how that actually might relate to meaning in life. But all of that is for another day. If there are any particular things you want to hear about or you just want to connect, feel free to reach out on drugshistory at gmail.com or on Twitter at drugshistory. Finally, just so you know, there were some minor connection issues and uh, there was some background noise at a a few points, but it, it didn't last long, fortunately. So without further ado, here's the interview with Jared Moffat, which starts with him mentioning his title. Sure. I'm the state campaigns manager for the Marijuana Policy Project. Great. And how did you first get involved in the world of policy activism? Yeah, I was part of the Students for Sensible Drug Policy chapter at Brown University, where I went to college uh, all four years, was a pretty active member of the group and served as president and really got my sort of toes in the water initially with a statewide campaign for marijuana decriminalization in Rhode Island, which um, happy to say we were successful in passing passing that law decriminalizing possession in 2012, and it went into effect the following year. And in that campaign, I got to work pretty closely with uh, the Marijuana Policy Project and um, also other drug policy groups I became acquainted with. And Basically, one thing led to another after I graduated, remained involved in Rhode Island politics and drug policy reform specifically, and started a campaign called Regulate Rhode Island, which was a, uh, which still is a coalition working to legalize, regulate, and tax marijuana for adults in the state. 
by passing a law through the legislature. And after starting that coalition and doing some of the groundwork, uh, MPP essentially asked to, to hire me and bring me aboard their team so that I could continue that work with them. And uh, that was in 2014. And uh, it's kind of evolved from there. I now work in the ballot campaigns department. So I still have my toe in, in Rhode Island and, and definitely we're, we're excited about this year, but uh, I also have other statewide ballot campaigns that I work on as well. And just making sure the work in Rhode Island, was that a specific SSDP project? Not uh, specific to SSDP. It was something that we as a chapter decided it would make sense for us to help organize college students and others uh, to support the decriminalization effort. So this was something that MPP was already, you know, sort of working on prior to our involvement. And, um, you know, we just got involved in a big way, along with the chapter at the University of Rhode Island. Uh, We had a very, I think, a pretty strong team of student activists who teamed up with MPP and Open Doors Rhode Island, a few other organizations, and kind of formed a ad hoc coalition. And in terms of the process of, of the Rhode Island work specifically, were you there kind of getting things up off the ground initially? Was it already jumping into, I know you were saying MPP, it sounded like was already doing some work there. What was the actual kind of process like of initially getting involved in it? Yeah, so MPP had been involved in Rhode Island for many years. They were involved in helping uh, pass the medical marijuana law, which originally passed in 2006. And They later expanded it to have dispensaries in 2009. So MPP had already had a footprint and involvement in the state. And uh, they were definitely sort of, you know, spearheading the decriminalization initiative. And after that passed, you know, we were all thinking, okay, the next step is is tax and regulate, you know, uh, let's go for full legalization. And that was something I, you know, sort of did with a small group of of, of peers uh, on my own initially. I mean, we had good relationships with MPP, but uh, we basically just started the Regulate Rhode Island Coalition from scratch. Um, actually, actually got inspiration for the name and the, the logo at a DPA conference and, you know, did some crowdfunding initially just to raise, you know, a few thousand bucks. It wasn't really, you know, taking off in a huge way, but we were, you know, again, building, building the coalition. And I think that MPP saw that work and saw the value and wanted to make sure it continued. So I think that's part of why they uh, ended up hiring me. And in terms of MPP, uh, for listeners who might not know, is it fair to characterize the the Marijuana Policy Project or MPP as this sort of umbrella organization of activism trying to do exactly what you were kind of alluding to, where in individual areas, if there are different people working, you know, fighting the good fight, so to say, in terms of decrim or, or legalization, then they can kind of act as an umbrella. Yeah, absolutely. I think that MPP's model by and large is about, you know, having as a national organization, we have you know, a, a small federal lobbying team, and we do certainly pay attention and, and involve ourselves in federal efforts, uh, you know, to reform marijuana laws. But I think the by far the most success we've had is at the state level. And, you know, we've been involved at this point now in out of the 15 states that have passed adult use legalization, we've been heavily involved in 10 of those efforts. And the way that we sort of operate, which I think is a great model is you know, we kind of bring our, you know, expertise on the issue. Um, we have great, you know, organizers, legislative analysts, you know, folks that can kind of have conversations with, you know, lawmakers, with community groups, with, you know, sort of a range of stakeholders. And so we bring that and then we typically partner with a local team of activists who are already, you know, working on the issue, who have kind of laid the groundwork. And uh, that's certainly what we do with ballot initiatives. We typically find states where there's already, you know, kind of a grassroots movement or campaign and we, we help them, we partner with them and uh, we kind of become a one big happy family and um, it's worked out really well. So we do that in, you know, again, at the ballot initiative uh, sort of level, but also state legislative lobbying efforts as well. And so Regulate Rhode Island was, you know, pretty much fitting into that same model that MPP has used uh, over, you know, over the years. And um, yeah, they saw that, okay, we've got, you know, this coalition on the ground in Rhode Island that's working on legalization. Um, Let's, you know, let's partner with them. And so 
yeah, that's that's essentially how how we operate, and I think it's a it's a pretty pretty successful model. And for anyone who might want to get more hands on involved in the kind of work that MPP is doing, are there ways to get involved directly with MPP, or is it better to try to find those local groups that are doing the work and sync up with them? Yeah, you can absolutely get involved with MPP. I mean, we, you know, we're a kind of member funded organization. I mean, we have you know lots of folks who. Um, you know, contribute and, and support our efforts. And we very frequently, you know, send emails out to our uh, supporters in different states and sometimes at the national level for, you know, things that, that they can take action on. So if it's, you know, calling a legislator or if it's, you know, testifying at a bill hearing, if it's, um, you know, doing something to support a ballot campaign, um, you know, that's definitely the way to be involved with MPP is to sign up for, you know, action alerts, um, you know, visit our website, follow our Facebook page, and we frequently, you know, share actions that we want supporters to take uh, and help kind of organize those efforts. So, you know, we're, we aren't, you know, as active as we'd like to be in every single state. We have a limited, you know, we have limited staff, limited resources, so we can't necessarily have active campaigns going in every single state. But, you know, in many states, we do have active efforts, coalitions that people can join. And um, even in the states that we're not really active in, uh, we still typically send out, you know, action alerts and, and let people know what's going on so that they can contact their, their officials, their legislators, uh, or, you know, governors, regulators, whoever it is. So the best way to, you know, be involved with MPP is basically follow our Facebook page and sign up for our email alerts. And wherever you live, we will keep you posted on what's going on and how you can get involved. And in terms of some of the more recent work that you're focusing on, do you mind just giving an overview of some of the projects you've either recently been working on and wrapped up or are currently involved in? Sure. So the one legislative lobbying state that is sort of under my purview, which I've already mentioned, is Rhode Island. And that's kind of the the odd exception, but it's because I have a history in Rhode Island and, you know, still, still have a lot of contacts there. So we're continuing, we're actually, you know, really ramping up right now the Regulate Rhode Island Coalition because it looks like we're, you know, potentially on the verge of passing finally um, a legalization bill in Rhode Island this legislative session. So that's the kind of one legislative lobbying effort that I'm involved in. Um, last year, you know, was an exciting year because of a number of ballot initiatives. And the three campaigns that I was really involved in, uh, in a big way, were the Montana uh, uh, efforts to legalize marijuana for adults through a ballot initiative there and, uh, and South Dakota as well, where we passed a medical marijuana statutory initiative, as well as a constitutional adult use legal legalization initiative. And, um, we were successful in both of those States. I also spent a lot of time working on a Nebraska medical marijuana constitutional amendment that, um, you know, it still breaks my heart to talk about it, frankly, because I was extremely involved in the signature gathering process that went into the summer. And, you know, we kind of overcame a lot of obstacles in terms of funding. And then, you know, we had COVID hit. And so it was a real kind of Herculean effort that, you know, our volunteers and a lot of the folks on the team put in to help us qualify for the ballot. But sadly, in September, later that year, uh, or, you know, a couple of months after we officially qualified, the Supreme Court kicked us off the ballot. So it's kind of a long story to explain why that happened. Um, but, you know, extremely disappointing to see that. So those were the three um, big campaigns that I was involved in uh, last year. And even just between the Montana and the South Dakota ones, it sounds as though, you know, on the surface of it, someone can just read that, hey, ballots were ballot initiatives were passed. Cannabis is now legal in these places. But it sounds like when it, when you actually start uh, digging into the process of change and what that change looked like, uh, it, it sounds as though the approaches have to be pretty or, or can be pretty different and tailored to the state. It sounded like one was a constitutional amendment. The other might have just been a law, if I, if I got that correctly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. There's a distinction between um, statutory, when we're talking about ballot initiatives uh, or voter referendums, there's a distinction between statutory initiatives, which are like normal laws. So it's as if the legislature passed um, a normal law, except in this case, it's being approved by voters. 
And then on the other hand, you have constitutional amendments. So, uh, right, like each state has a state constitution and, you know, only 26 states allow some type of citizen initiated ballot uh, process. And uh, so not every state has that. For example, Rhode Island, that's, you know, if we could run an initiative in Rhode Island, we definitely would, because it'd be a lot easier um, (laughs) to to get it passed. But, um, you know, of the 26 states that have uh, a citizen initiated ballot process, some of them allow you to run statutory initiatives only, some allow constitutional initiatives only, and some allow both. And in the drafting phase, you know, which is done, you know, early in the process. Um, So if we're talking about, for example, the 2022 election, we're, you know, right now we're starting to think about, you know, drafting and and sort of, you know, the initial steps. And when we do that process, we have to very, you know, be very careful uh, and understand the laws of the particular states because, um, you know, you have to understand what you need to do uh, in order to have that initiative qualify for the ballot and then ultimately, you know, become law. So, for example, I'll just kind of elaborate on one example. In South Dakota, to pass the adult use legalization constitutional amendment, it required actually double the number of voter signatures to qualify for the ballot. So someone might say, well, why would you do that? That seems like doubling the amount of work that you need to do. Um, and that's true. We have to consider that you know constitutional amendments typically require a lot more signatures. But the reason we pursued that is because we knew that if we passed a statutory a legalization initiative that the South Dakota legislature um, could simply repeal it. Um, again, different states have different rules. In South Dakota, there's nothing that really protects a, a citizen's uh, citizen initiated voter initiative. So um, if it's a statutory measure, then um, they can have a you know, simple majority vote in the state legislature and you know, totally you know, undermine the bill or you know, basically repeal it. So we went for a constitutional measure because the legislature doesn't have the authority uh, to, ref- to amend or repeal constitutional measures. They have, to, they have to send it back to the voters for approval. So that's exactly why we did it because you know, South Dakota and like many states that we work in with ballot initiatives, we're basically going into those states and doing this work, not because we want to, you know, uh, push legalization on the state, but because the voters of the state are already, uh, a majority of the voters are already on our side. And the legislature, the elected politicians are simply behind and they're not listening to their constituents. So um, that's why we get involved a lot of times in these ballot states. And we want to make sure when we pass something that it's, you know, protected, reasonably protected from you know, the politicians who were who were never on board to begin with. And if, if honing in on South Dakota for a little bit, going back to the, the sort of the very beginnings of the effort, did that start with someone either yourself or someone else who was involved in the team? Or was it someone kind of, uh, you know, the way you were describing your own path working locally in Rhode Island and then joining MPP in this larger fight? What, what did that look like in terms of actually getting the ballot initiative off the ground? Sure. So, it's kind of a mix in the case of South Dakota. There's a group called New Approach South Dakota, which is a grassroots organization led by a wonderful organizer and leader, Melissa Mentley. And Melissa had been working in South Dakota for years, I believe it's you know five or six years, working to pass a medical cannabis initiative through the state legislature. So she had done uh, and and her you know volunteers and other folks working with New Approach South Dakota, uh, that team had you know built up a, a a pretty impressive infrastructure again of of grassroots advocacy. They had you know already drafted a medical marijuana bill, and that was you know really helpful uh, in terms of getting the entire campaign going. You know from from the drafting piece, which again was a lot of the legwork was already done. And the signature gathering piece, which you know relied on some volunteers, um, the the amendment A, which was the constitutional measure for adult use, that was something that you know really no one had been uh, you know working on in a serious way in South Dakota because you know folks were sort of taking the the traditional approach of you know we need to pass medical marijuana before we can you know get adult use, but. Uh, we partnered with uh, another group, and we do this frequently in the ballot campaigns department. Uh, there's another national group 
called New Approach uh, Pack, which is no relation to New Approach South Dakota. They just happen to have the same uh, same name or similar name. And um, New Approach Pack is essentially a philanthropy group that that helps uh, fund a lot of these ballot efforts. And so, you know, they do basic research into what states are viable for different ballot uh, ballot campaigns. So. Our attention was already on South Dakota because medical cannabis seemed like a possibility. Um, and essentially, after some some further research and you know a, an internal poll, essentially uh, of South Dakota residents, it seemed like adult use legalization could be viable too. So uh, basically, in 2019, towards the end of the summer and into the fall, the team decided that hey, let's let's go for both. And so the signature gathering phase uh, was a little <laughs> a little crazy, but uh, ended up being successful and getting enough signatures to put both measures um, and qualifying both measures for the ballot. So yeah, in the case of South Dakota, it was a little bit of both. There was a little bit of a, a grassroots foundation already there working on specifically medical marijuana, but that was really helpful and also kind of as a launching point for the adult use measure as well. Yeah, and it sounds especially as though the the medical side was kind of a, a longer standing fight, if I caught that correctly. And the the free use side was able to learn from some of the work done on the medical on the medicinal marijuana side to understand that, oh, well, actually, there might be appetite for something wider. And so the decision was made of let's go for both, not just one or the other. Yeah, that's basically right. So we, again, ended up all being one big happy family, you know, working on both initiatives together. And um, yeah, I think a lot of people thought it was, you know, it's certainly unprecedented. No state has, has passed a medical initiative and an adult use initiative at the same time in the same uh, election. So, you know, there were a lot of eyebrows that were kind of raised. And, you know, I think it was, I think a little concerning to both of us of, or to all of us, you know, we want to make sure that medical succeeds for sure. And are we, you know, by marrying it to this adult use proposal, are we, you know, is that a good idea? And, uh, you know, it, it was something, again, that was unprecedented. So no one really knew for sure. But now that we've been successful, it's, it's, it's interesting, because it looks like other states now kind of want to emulate that it looks like Nebraska, for example, is uh, going to be pushing for both medical and adult use uh, in the 2022 election, Idaho, uh, activists are talking about the same thing of kind of, you know, making that great, great leap forward from, you know, total prohibition to, to having both. So, yeah, again, it was it was a bit of a unique experiment. And I'm obviously really happy that it succeeded. Got it. And before shifting to kind of where things go from here, now that it's passed, I just kind of want to get your get a sense of what was your personal takeaway from November? Were you surprised with the five initiatives or South Dakota specifically? Um, yeah, what was kind of your, your personal view of how things went down? Yeah, obviously, I was very, very happy to see um, the clean sweep, as we have been calling it, of, you know, five successful initiatives, including, by the way, Mississippi, which I wasn't directly involved in, but the medical uh, marijuana initiative there. That's my home state. So I was really, really happy to to see Mississippi, you know, pass medical marijuana, which will hopefully benefit, you know, some people I know and some of my family members. So that was really awesome. And I think it also was a great symbol of, you know, where we are in the movement. I mean, you saw, you know, New Jersey, which voted for Biden by 20 points. And you saw South Dakota, which voted for Trump by 20 points. Both of those states you know, past legalization initiatives. And I think that that sends a very strong message to politicians in Washington, but politicians in every state, that this is a mainstream bipartisan or nonpartisan issue. And that was, I think, a huge, you know, boon for our movement. I, I think that, you know, we really feel like we're, we're kind of hitting our stride here. And you know, we don't want to certainly rest on our laurels. And, you know, it's our job at MPP to keep telling people there's a lot more work to do. But it's also a huge, you know, kind of wind in our sails. And it's going to help us, I think, uh, make the case for federal reform over the next two years. 
In terms of South Dakota, so the ballot initiative passed, and if you think uh, one of the other states, it would be a more interesting case study piece, feel free to, to pick a different one. But at this point, you know, five states have passed different ballot initiatives around or related to cannabis legalization, whether medicinal or general. But that doesn't mean that the next day after these initiatives passed that cannabis was then legally and commercially available, uh, whether just in medicinal or or more broadly. When do you, you know, let, let's pick South Dakota first. When do you think that cannabis might actually become commercially available and what has to happen between now and then? Well, that's a really big question, but you're absolutely right to point out that implementation of measures is sort of a different phase altogether. I mean, you know, there's there's the campaign, which ends on election day, more or less. I mean, once the votes are counted. But implementation, actually getting what the law says into sort of the real world and making, you know, making that translation happen is a different phase. And, and that's where we are in South Dakota. So there's some debate actually about when Amendment A takes effect. Traditionally, it's thought that July 1st um, is when any citizen initiated measure takes effect. But it turns out that some legal minds disagree on that question as it pertains to Amendment A. So I can't really speak to that. It seems like, by and large, the state is operating like it has not taken effect. And, um, and in fact, that could be related to the fact that there is a, a lawsuit that's been filed uh, by opponents against Amendment A. And they're trying to essentially nullify the results of, of the vote on Amendment A. So that's one piece is we're dealing with a lawsuit. Um, the other piece is, you know, on the medical marijuana side, again, remember Measure 26, which uh, was the medical initiative, that's a statutory initiative. So the South Dakota legislature has, you know, convened and now we're sort of essentially playing defense to make sure that, you know, the key provisions and, and the structure that Measure 26 envisions and sets up is respected. So we have to kind of fight now uh, within the legislature to protect what the will of the voters is on Measure 26. And depending on what happens with Amendment A in the lawsuit, we very well may have to make efforts to defend that as well. One possibility is the legislature could actually put another amendment on the ballot in 2022. So it's possible that they may try to you know, run a campaign to repeal it or to drastically alter it and send it to the voters in 2022. And in that case, you know, it sort of forces our hand and to the extent that we can, we're going to have to, you know, get involved and, and try to defeat that. The language of the actual initiative for Amendment A, it sets out a timeline for when commercial sales are supposed to begin, which is basically April 2022. So assuming that, you know, the, this lawsuit is, is defeated, then marijuana will be legal for possession and, um, you know, some cultivation, uh, like home cultivation, uh, on July 1st, 2021. But the actual scaling up of the, you know, market and opening of stores, that all takes more time because you have to have, you know, regulators. In this case, it's the Department of Revenue who's in charge with implementing and, and overseeing the legalization law. And they have a timeline to draft regulations, to accept applications for businesses. And basically, April 2022 is when they have to have all of those regulations finalized and finished. So it's hard to say exactly when stores will open. It's always tough to predict that. But I would say probably sometime in you know, late 2022, perhaps into the summer, um, if we're, you know, if we're doing well. Um, but no earlier than April 2022. That's sort of the, the earliest possible point. For adult use. Yeah. yeah. And we, uh, again, if things go well with measure 26, then medical marijuana should be available much sooner because the timeline envisioned by measure 26 is, is a much shorter timeline. So the Department of Health is the agency tasked with overseeing that program. And they, yeah, they will need to have basically, you know, dispensaries kind of up and running, you know, no later than the end of this year. But again, all that's sort of hanging in the balance because the legislature may, may be able to amend Measure 26 or change it. And we're fighting that and we don't want that to happen. 
but uh, because it's a statutory measure, that's a possibility. And focusing on the on the medicinal side with measure 26, with what am I correct in understanding that part of the the battle that's now happening is that certain groups are trying within the legislature are trying to sort of change how the law looks or potentially find a way to kind of totally subvert it? Because I understand on the from what I got on the uh, constitutional amendment a side, that's a lawsuit to try to get rid of it. What's happening with the uh, medicinal side at the moment? That's a great question. And, you know, it's it's hard to say what the motives are in you know, in each particular case with with different lawmakers. I mean, I'm sure there are some lawmakers um, who are outright opposed to medical marijuana. And there are others who just want it done in a different way. They want to tweak certain things. And there are some who, you know, are on our side and they don't, you know, they see measure 26 as as a, as a good law and, and uh, as self-executing. So it doesn't really need legislative involvement at all. And um, that's, you know, part of our task is figuring out who are allies um, and what are the motivations of the people who, you know, are seeking to, to change it. So, you know, that's part of the complications here. And we, you know, hope that what we can do is essentially make the case that Measure 26, which, by the way, passed by a really huge uh, margin, 70 percent to 30 percent uh, of South Dakota's South Dakotans voted in favor of it. You know, our, our position is, look, the voters approve this law. It's self-executing. You don't need to get involved at all if you're the legislature. We just need the Department of Health to implement it. Now, the argument from some of the lawmakers is kind of a, you know, mommy knows best type of argument. Of, oh, well, the voters didn't fully understand all the details of the measure. And they didn't really, you know, they don't really get what it does. So, you know, we need to come in and clean it all up. Um, and the irony is, frankly, the legislature, many of them, I should say, not all of them, but, but many of them who are, you know, sort of opposed, um, basically have no idea what they're talking about. So <laughs> that's the funny piece is their, their argument is that the voters don't know what they're doing when they approve something 70 to 30%. Um, but, you know, they think they know how to do it, even though, remember, the only reason we come into a state like South Dakota is because the legislature isn't acting. Um, you know, people for years, Melissa and New Approach South Dakota had been advocating for a medical marijuana program for years. So the legislature had plenty of time to enact its own law. And now all of a sudden that we've, you know, won in, in this kind of big way, they think they can come in and, and change everything and that they get to control everything. And so, you know, I, basically our, our position again is you, you are beholden to the will of your constituents. And in every single county, every single legislative district, the voters overwhelmingly supported Measure 26. So, you know, in, in maybe in more polite terms, get your hands off of it. Yeah. And has have there been any specific proposals of what to ch- of what certain people within the legislature are proposing to change? Or it's just the general like, we, we, we just don't want it going through in its current form. And it's still to be determined in terms of what are the specific components that need to be fought over. It's it's a little early in the process. And, um, you know, this is all happening in real time. So right now, as I'm speaking to you, I don't believe there's been any legislation introduced yet that would make major overhauls to Measure 26. But we are certainly concerned that that is coming down the pipeline. So, um, you know, the other complicating thing that I probably should mention is Amendment A was, is an adult use legalization initiative, but it also included a provision that states that the, that South Dakota has to have a medical marijuana program. So that's now a constitutional requirement. Now it doesn't say what kind of medical marijuana program, it doesn't spell out the details, but assuming Amendment A is upheld and not overturned by this lawsuit, then South Dakota has to have, by its own constitution, some type of medical marijuana program. So any effort to, you know, just totally repeal Measure 26 is almost certainly not going to go anywhere. Uh, they're going to have to, you know, have a medical marijuana program. So essentially where the battleground is, I think, right now is over the the key provisions and the specific details of how the program will work. You know, how many dispensaries will there there be? Will patients be allowed to have 
home grow? Uh, will there be onerous restrictions on who qualifies? Uh, these are the sorts of things that you know we're we're going to you know be fighting about. And it sounds as though the the medicinal side can't be there, there can't be laws kind of repealing it unless the lawsuit against Amendment A potentially wins, or in twenty twenty two there's some kind of push to revoke or or uh, counteract that amendment. But even w- without getting into hypotheticals, in terms of the initial lawsuit against Constitutional Amendment A. Is there a clear basis of of why it's happening, or what what is the specific point that they are saying or that they are suing over? Yes, so there's two kind of parallel arguments they're trying to make. N- number one, they're saying that Amendment A was improperly approved by voters because it is not an amendment to the South Dakota Constitution. It's a quote revision. Now, again, this is an area that is not my expertise in terms of constitutional definitions of revision versus amendments, especially in South Dakota, you know, sort of jurisprudence. But basically, the, the, the sort of, you know, upper level, high level uh, explanation is when you argue that something's a revision, you're saying it's a much more significant change to the Constitution than, than an amendment. And in, in South Dakota, to approve a revision to the Constitution, they have to have a constitutional convention, which did not happen. So their argument is this was improperly approved because we it's a revision and we never had a constitutional convention. So that's one argument. The other argument is that the measure violates a, what's called the single subject rule. So this is something that exists in many states, but South Dakota has only recently adopted this type of law and in 2018. So essentially the single subject rule in general, uh, which again is in many states, says something like when you put a measure on the ballot, it can only be about one thing. And you know the, the thinking behind this is pretty benign. They don't want people, um, you know, let's say you want to legalize you know gambling and then at the same time you're putting in an abortion you know, rule or something like that. They don't want voters to be confused because, you know, an initiative has multiple subjects in it. Mm-hmm. So what they're saying is that Amendment A is violating the single subject rule because it has multiple subjects. Now, again, on its face, and what our argument essentially is, is that's absurd. It's about cannabis. It's about, it's about one thing. It's about marijuana policy. But they're arguing that, oh, no, actually, there's many subjects um, in this measure because it, you know, requires laws on hemp. It requires a medical marijuana program and it legalizes for adults. So those are all different subjects according to uh, the opponents. So yeah, so one argument is this is a revision, not an amendment. And so it was improperly approved by voters. And the second argument is it's unconstitutional just on its face because it violates a single subject rule. And in terms of, I mean, obviously, there's going to be uh, legal and legislative discussions and battles around these things. But are there ways that individuals can try to directly contribute or affect the outcome of this if they're motivated enough to, whether they're residents or or, uh, within South Dakota or, or elsewhere in the country? The best thing that anyone can do who's listening, who wants to help is, um, you know, is make a donation to our legal fund. Um, and you can do that by going to sd2020.org. And so that's the campaign website. And there's a donate button there. And the reason that's really important is because, you know, we didn't plan on this lawsuit happening. I mean, we budgeted for the campaign. We knew there might be some implementation work in the legislature. But, you know, this lawsuit is... Uh, is becoming very expensive very quickly um, because it's likely going to go to the Supreme Court. And, you know, we want to basically put all put everything we can into defending it because a lot hinges on this. Um, so anyone who's not in South Dakota, that's what I would ask is, you know, donate to the Legal Defense Fund. If you're in South Dakota, then it's going to be really important to be engaged in the legislative session. So the way to do that is to go to that same website, sd2020.org, and sign up to be a volunteer and let us know that you're ready to take action when the time comes. So right now we're not asking supporters to do much other than maintain a good relationship with your uh, state representative and state senator. 
But, you know, there's going to be testimony needed at bill hearings. There's going to be calls that need to be made, um, potentially, you know, text messages, emails, all that sort of grassroots advocacy stuff we're going to need to activate very soon. So that, those are the two, two ways to help. And so hopefully these hurdles will be cleared. And at the point where there's no more kind of legal pushback and things are, are just moving forward, how much are, or rather, how much of a, of a set framework of what will be part of the specific, say, adult use cannabis, uh, you know, in terms of um, any kind of more restorative justice provisions, any kind of additional health concerns or funding aspects, uh, you know, what will the tax revenue go towards? Are, are those kind of details, have they been discussed yet? Or is that kind of uh, down the line, especially given the, the legislative and, and legal battles at the moment? It's a bit of a mixed bag. So, you know, in general, anytime you pass, whether it's a constitutional or statutory law, that, that sets sort of a basic framework. And, you know, those measures, those laws can be more or less specific. Sometimes laws are passed and they get into the finer points of how marijuana should be packaged. Sometimes they go into, you know, how many licenses there can be and what types of licenses. Sometimes they're, they're much more broad. And what's needed to flesh out the details is uh, our regulations that are much more comprehensive. And those are developed by the regulating agencies, so which are part of the executive branch. So again, in the case of South Dakota, um, Measure 26, which is the medical initiative, it does have some details about how the program is supposed to work, but there are a lot of details that, that aren't addressed. And those details are uh, intended to be addressed by regulators at the Department of Health. So it's kind of a two-part uh, process. There's the law, and then there's the regulations that implement the law. In the case of, you know, you mentioned expungement, that's something that we are going to be pushing as a standalone separate bill in the South Dakota legislature. The reason is we wanted to include it in Amendment A. And actually, the reason that the drafters, uh, the attorneys who helped us draft it, you know, decided that that would be a bad idea was precisely because of the single subject rule. Um, there is some precedent in other states that when you try to pass a legalization initiative and an expungement initiative in the same measure, that that runs the risk of violating the single subject rule. So we made the decision to, to leave expungement out of the ballot measure. So we are kind of in the process right now of, of building um, advocacy efforts to pass a standalone bill through the legislature. So it's, it's again, it's a mixed bag. They're, you know, the measures themselves that are passed, like, for example, in New Jersey, the, the text that was passed uh, by the voters is a very short, you know, it's a very short measure. It's, it doesn't, I mean, it's, it couldn't be more than 250 words, probably. And it leaves a lot of the details uh, in terms of how the program is going to be set up to, number one, the legislature. So they have to now pass implementing legislation but then even after that, the legislation is going to need to be fleshed out by rules and regulations created by the executive agencies overseeing it. So that's the way to think about it. You have the Constitution, which is above all, right? That's sort of the law of the land uh, in each state. And then you have the statutory, you know, normal laws and the code that it's typically called. And then you have rules and regulations at the executive level. Uh, and all of those three things combined give you sort of the, the framework and structure for, you know, a legal cannabis market. Given that we're, we're getting towards the tail end of our time together today, I wanted to switch tracks back to something you alluded to earlier in terms of generally looking forward. And I, I want to start this portion with asking you uh, the personal question of where do you see the key battleground, so to say, in terms of really changing cannabis policy? Is it still a state-by-state -state battle, or do you see this, given how uh, the MORE Act passed through the House, depending on what happens with the Senate whenever it comes, do you see this shifting to the federal level, or does it still need to be concurrent? I think that we're going to continue to see parallel efforts at the state level, uh, in various states, and uh, efforts at the federal level. There's a lot of organizations, you know, including MPP, but other organizations working at the federal level. Uh, this is something that, you know, we're really happy to see a lot of the 
congressional Democrats, you know, kind of finally come aboard. So there is hope that, you know, we could see something um, emerge in the next couple of years. I know that Chuck Schumer, the now the, I guess he's going to, you know, be the majority leader um, in the Senate is, has said that, you know, he expects to have a vote on the MORE Act uh, or some type of, you know, legalization legislation in the next two years while the Democrats control the Congress and the presidency. So that's, you know, I, that, that, I leave that to other people to speculate about what's going to happen. Obviously, there's a lot going on in the country and in Congress and, you know, in Washington. So who knows whether marijuana will sort of make it on the docket, but we all hope so. And, you know, our sort of strategy at MPP for many years has been to not to take our eyes off federal reform, but rather to make the case that state reforms done kind of in a piecemeal way as we've been doing them is actually the road to federal reform. Um, the reason for that is, you know, when you pass legalization in a state like Montana or South Dakota, those states are represented by, you know, senators and representatives in Congress. And so you significantly increase the pressure on those politicians to support federal reform when their own states have, you know, passed laws that are essentially um, kind of undermined or, or in conflict with federal law. So I think that's, you know, I, I, it's, it's anyone's guess as, you know, why, you know, things happen at the federal level, but we would make the argument that, you know, these series of state reforms that we've seen over the past, you know, two or three decades, I guess just two decades now, are very, you know, very much responsible for moving Congress along. So I don't think right now you have to make a decision. Um, and different organizations obviously have to make decisions about where to allocate their resources and what to prioritize. Uh, and for MPP's, you know, uh, perspective on that, we're going to continue to operate in the states. And we're really excited about 2021 and 2022. You know, I think we're going to see you know, several more states pass laws through the legislature this year, thanks to, you know, grassroots and, and uh, other, you know, campaigns, legislative lobbying efforts. And I think we're going to see more ballot initiatives pass in 2022. So, you know, we're going to get to a point where <laughs> the vast majority of states, um, you know, have legalized marijuana entirely. And, and at some point, the federal system is going to have to adapt. Absolutely. I, I didn't pull up the stat, but I if I'm not mistaken, already close to, if not over half of Americans uh, are in states where there's either access to at least medicinal, if not full legal use cannabis. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. 36 states have, you know, what we define as functional medical marijuana law. So yeah, we're well on our way to that, to that mark. And so there's clearly so much activity happening. Are, are there any specific kind of uh, initiatives of future ballots or anything in particular that you're personally kind of most excited to, to see happen and potentially get to work on? I'm excited about it all. I think that, you know, it's a really awesome feeling when, you know, you're able to pass uh, a law and, you know, you can look in years prior and you see, you know, thousands of arrests happening every year in that state for, for marijuana, the vast majority for, you know, possession. And then once these laws go on the books, you see arrests just drastically decline. Um, and same with, you know, similar thing with medical marijuana. I mean, there's, you know, thousands of people in every state, um, you know, children, people with cancer who um, have to face really difficult questions like, you know, should we move to another state and uproot our families so that, you know, a loved one can have access to something that helps them. And when we pass these laws, we you know, help take, we, we, we take that decision away from them. We, we make it so that they don't have to choose. Um, and, you know, that provides relief to, to a lot of people. So that's the most exciting thing to me is, you know, making a real world difference. I think that in terms of the movement itself, you know, the big, the big topic and it, it, and rightfully so is around social equity and the licensing models and who's going to control the industry. I think that's the next, you know, not the next, it is the current, um, you know, focus of discussion because we don't want to recreate, you know, injustices in, in these reforms that we're pursuing. So MPP has, um, you know, really made it a focal point, especially in the last two to three years to focus on social justice and racial equity and ensure that the licensing models and the tax revenue uh, is being allocated in a way that addresses the harms 
of prohibition that we've, you know, endured that people have endured for, you know, decades and decades. So that's really exciting to me too, because that I think puts marijuana policy reform, you know, squarely inside the larger movement for social justice and criminal justice reform. So I think that, you know, we've always sort of been there, but I'm really happy to see that, you know, the movement as a whole has this consensus now that this is, you know, when you legalize marijuana, you have to do it in a way that addresses, you know, the past harms of prohibition, because people can continue to struggle and inequality persists, even when you legalize marijuana. So we need to make sure that what we're doing is not recreating or, or exacerbating or continuing any, any of those harms. And it's challenging, but, um, but it's exciting at the same time. And I mean, we've covered a pretty wide swath of topics today. And again, I'm thankful for you taking the time. Before we wrap up, is there anything else that you want to mention, whether it's about uh, MPP and the work that you do, about specific campaigns, uh, or just anything in the world of cannabis policy? I would just encourage, you know, anyone who's listening that there are many, many ways to get involved. You know, we spent a lot of time talking about um, reforming state laws, but another, you know, big uh, sort of front is local, uh, local ordinances and rules. And, you know, we're seeing in some states that localities are um, becoming kind of battlegrounds for, for marijuana policy. And uh, I know that some of our opponents are picking up on that and shifting their efforts into, you know, stopping the, you know, establishment of dispensaries in a town or, you know, imposing punitive policies on, you know, people who are, you know, caught smoking publicly and things like that, or, you know, restrictions. So I just want to remind everyone who's listening that, you know, we obviously need to keep reforming state laws and and holding, you know, state officials accountable to, implement the laws. Um, We also need to be focused on local policies as well. Um, You know, here in California, where I live, um, we passed an expungement bill and an automatic expungement bill in 2018. And unfortunately, a lot of the courts in the various counties haven't actually, you know, implemented that law yet. And so, you know, it's, it's, I think, incumbent upon us to recognize that just because laws pass doesn't mean that we're going to get the results. We have to keep the pressure on. We have to pay attention. And um, and that's where our power comes from, because when politicians know that they're being watched, um, <laughs> then they typically behave a little bit better. Yeah, well, that is a, a great call to action to end with. And again, thanks for taking the time to chat today, Jared. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks for taking the time to tune in. The History of Drugs and Society is produced by me, Eugene Leventhal. Credits on the music go to Blue Dot Sessions and to BBC Sound Effects, Splice Sounds, and Kyle's for the free audio. Feel free to reach out on Twitter at Drugs History or over email, drugshistory at gmail.com. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend or rate on iTunes. Be well and speak soon. <laughs>